Good morning. Um, this Sunday is actually uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so we are going to take another break. Hold on. We're going to be taking another break of um, from Ephesians this morning, and um, we're going to be doing a sermon uh, concerning abortion. Um, and before I even get started on this sermon, I just want to say, um, I actually want to ask a question. What does Eve, Moses, Rahab, David, Solomon, Peter, and Paul have in common? I knew second service would answer out loud. I heard some people. They're all heroes of the faith, right? They're also all sinners saved by grace. Half of them uh, murderers and half of them adulterers. But all of them saved by God's grace, sinners saved by grace. And I can honestly say this morning, I don't know one person in this room, and I said this morning in first service, I don't know one person in our church uh, that has had an abortion or has been associated with an abortion. Um, I can say now a person came up to me between services and, and told me that they, they did. I can say statistically, there's probably many of you, and I just want to tell you, as a pastor at Country Oaks, before we even get into the sermon, that you're welcomed here. And not just that, and I was glad this person came and talked to me because I I told them this just to their face. You're wanted here. And if you've put your faith in Christ, and I know this person has, your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven Psalms 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And I want you to feel that, God's grace this morning, if you've been associated or have had an abortion. But there's three topics I want to look at today, this morning in the sermon, and the three topics are this, a, a worldview. I want to look at a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. Then I want to look at a worldview where abortion makes sense. And lastly, I want to look at the heart of the argument for and against abortion. For and against abortion. So I want to start with a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. And of course, this is a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview truly is a story. It's a grand story. It's a, it's a meta-narrative. It's a story that we are a part of, that we are in. Yet it's a story that's not about us. It's a story that doesn't even start with us. It starts with God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. We have to start here. We have to start with God as our foundation, with him as being everything. Colossians says everything was created by him and for him. And biblical worldview is radically, radically God-centered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we just recently went over this. He spoke light into existence just by speaking. Day one, day two, he stretched out the heavens. Day three, he created earth and vegetations. Day four, sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures. Day six, land animals. And lastly, he created man. 
Then he gave man everything and said, have dominion. And here's a question I just want to ask. Why do you think he made man last? There's a couple answers to this question. One of them, I just think that he didn't want man taking any credit of anything. It's just... But truly, more than anything else, it's because man was the pinnacle of God's creation. Man was the pinnacle of God's creation. In fact, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man. It's interesting. This is the first glimpse, one of the first glimpses we have of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything else before this point was made with a command. Let there be light. Let the waters bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But with man, he said, let us make man. One theologian said this, it should be noted that a divine counsel or deliberation preceded the creation of man. Let us make man. This, began, or this again brings out the uniqueness of man's creation in connection with no other cre- a creature is such a divine counsel mention. I mean, think about that. Everything else was made by God's authority. Let there be light. Animals, let the earth bring forth. But with man, you see his affection. Let us make man. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made man out of his affection. God counseled with himself before making man. And this is what he said. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us, let us make man like us. Our image, our likeness. God made man to image God. Meaning man is like God in certain aspects. Man images God. How does, God, uh, how does man image God? Well, Genesis doesn't specifically explain or tell us. It just says that man images God. Maybe it's in his reason, in his intellect, in his will, in his creativity, in his emotion, in his language, in his ethics. I think it's partly all of those things, but one thing is very clear in Scripture. Because man images God, man is valuable. Man is valuable. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In the biblical worldview, man and animals have similarities. They're even made on the same day. But man, but man was made differently. Man was made differently. Man is the thumbprint of God. Man was made with God's image. And this is why in a biblical worldview, murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. Because man has value and dignity, yet at the same time it's okay to go out and hunt. Because animals are not made in the image of God. One theologian said, the reason that murder is here said to be such a horrendous crime so that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God, and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself. 
The God who was, was reflected in that individual. To touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence against God himself. In a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value. And human life is more valuable than animal life and plant life because man images God and therefore murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. But also in a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception. It starts at conception. The Bible clearly assumes that the unborn baby is a person. It just clearly assumes that. It's a presupposition of Scripture. Jeremiah 1, 5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And, and God is saying, Jeremiah, before you, you, were, you were formed in the womb, I knew you before you were created. But when was he created? In the womb. Psalms 22.10 says, On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalms 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jezreel 13, 7, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from, from the womb to the day of his death. That's the full span of human life on earth. The womb to the day of his death. Isaiah 49, 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Exodus 21, 22, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that the child comes out. In other words, if someone hits a pregnant woman and the child is pre, um, prematurely born, but there is no harm the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the, the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, in other words, if the baby dies that's in the womb because she got hit, then you shall pay life for life. And on and on it can go in Scripture. The Bible is clear. Human life starts in the womb. But, but a question we should ask is, does it teach that it starts at conception? I believe it does through some of the passages or verses that we've gone through, but just something interesting. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore he, it's talking about Jesus. It says, therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. He had to be like a human in every respect, it says. Jesus Christ had to experience the full span of human, of human existence, in other words, in every respect. So here's my question. When did that full span of human existence begin? Conception. Luke 1.30 says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Greek word there for conceived is to become pregnant. It's when Jesus' life started here on earth. Matthew 1.20 says, 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, that word conceived is actually a different Greek word that's used in Luke. Matthew and Luke use two different Greek words. This one emphasizes the male's role in conception. Either way, Jesus' life started at conception. Jesus experienced the full span of human existence in every respect, then human existence starts at conception. So in a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value because we were made in the image of God. And in a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception. Therefore, in a biblical worldview, abortion makes absolutely no sense because in a biblical worldview, abortion is murder. Murder is the intentional killing of an innocent human. And I just want to make clear, that's why capital punishment is not considered murder, because it's the intentional killing of an innocent human. There's no one more innocent than the unborn baby. Albert Moeller says, In the world of the Bible, every single human being and all life is sacred because of God. And every single human life is sacred because, of, because every single human being is made in the image of God. You see, in a biblical world, we come to understand that every one of us has dignity. Not because in ourselves we deserve dignity. But because we are made by a sovereign, all-powerful, and holy God who has made us in his image. In a biblical worldview, abortion makes absolutely no sense Because abortion is murder. Which leads me to my second topic or second point. A worldview where abortion makes sense. And and I think it's important that we examine the worldview. It's a secular worldview. But before I even get started on that, I just want to make it very clear. What matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not whether we think or what we say the fetus is. What matters is what the fetus truly is. If the unborn baby is a person, then abortion is murder. No matter what we think or say, no matter what we call the fetus, this is what R.C. Sproul says the fetus is either alive or not alive, the fetus is either human or not human, the fetus is either a person or not a person. What I think the fetus is does not determine what the fetus actually is. If a fetus is a living person, but I don't, do not believe or think that it is a living person, my thoughts have no bearing on what the fetus actually is. You know what's funny? It's just a side note. Fetus is, is Latin for unborn baby. It's Latin for unborn baby. In fact, I Google searched it, and the first thing that popped up is this. Quote, an unborn offspring of a mammal, in particular, an unborn human baby. So whenever you're talking about abortion and someone uses the word fetus, just ask him, why are you speaking Latin? I'm serious. Why are you speaking Latin? Let's speak English. An unborn human baby. Pastor Andy says... Whether we call 
and abortion, murder, depends on whether we call the unborn baby a person. But whether abortion is murder depends upon, upon whether the, the unborn is a person. Being a person and simply being called a person are not the same thing. So just because a worldview can make sense of abortion doesn't make abortion right. But I do want to look at the belief system that has made abortion possible. And this is why, because I want us to see the absurdity of this worldview, which denies God in his word. This worldview is a secular worldview. Secular humanism or the secular worldview is a philosophy or life stance that embraces human life, or human, I'm sorry, that embraces human reason, ethics, social justice, and philosophical naturalism. In other words, it believes only in the physical realities, while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. In other words, this worldview believes in no supernatural realities, no unphysical realities. Therefore, in this worldview, there is no God because God is spirit, non-physical, meaning man doesn't find his value from imaging God. So here's a scary question, and this should scare us. If man doesn't find his value and dignity in imaging God, where does man's value come from? The best answer secular philosophy can give is that man is more evolved than ever, other life forms. Therefore, he's more valuable. It's a worldview that really has adopted evolution as its primary theory to why man exists. Therefore, it's anthropology, which is just the fancy word for study of man. Anthromanpology, or ology, is the study of. The study of man is seen through that lens, the evolutionary process. The secular worldview sees man's worth coming from his utility developed by evolution. We need to understand what that word utility means. Utility is just our usefulness. Just our usefulness. Our usefulness, our capabilities, our rationality, our self-consciousness, our ability to communicate, and so on. We're just more evolved. Man is more evolved, therefore man is more valuable than other species. There's two things that should scare us about this logic, and I'm going to propose them in questions. The first one is this. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The second question is this. Who gets to define what utility is? So let's look at the first question. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? And the logical conclusion is that they're not as valuable. They're not as valuable. In fact, nuclear physicist Winston Duke says, a reasonable philosophy will define a human being as life which demonstrates utility, in other words, self-awareness, volition, and rationality. Thus, it should be recognized that not all men are human. It would seem to be more inhumane to kill an adult chimpanzee than a newborn baby, since the chimpanzee has greater mental awareness. Listen, if our utility is what defines our worth, then it could be logically argued that an adult chimpanzee is more valuable than a newborn baby. Because it can be argued that the chimpanzee has more utility, self-awareness, volition, and rationality, and so on. 
That's, that's a scary argument. That's a scary logic. And if you think this is just some obscure person that has this philosophy, according to Peter Singer, Peter Singer is the, the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Let me, let me just say that again. Bioethics, life ethics at Princeton University. And he says to say otherwise, he calls it speciesism, like racism. This is what he says, Peter Singer. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find that the non-human to have superior capabilities, both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can possibly be considered morally significant. Humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they are members of their own species are judging along the lines strikingly similar to those used by white racists who bestow superior value on the lives of other whites merely because they are members of their own race, and he calls this speciesism. Again, man doesn't get his value from imaging God. Where does he get it from? And where does that lead? Peter Senior, again, professor of bioethics at Princeton, believes those who regard the interest of a woman as overriding the merely potential interest of the fetus are taking their stand on a morally secure position. In other words, abortion is justifiable. And here's the logic. The fetus is so, so incapable, has so little utility, that the mere preference of the mother is more valuable than the fetus itself. And that's a pro-abortion, pro-choice logic right there. Where does that logic lead, though? And here's the one thing I appreciate about Peter Singer. He's, he's honest and consistent in his logic. He says this, Furthermore, the situation is unchanged for the newborn child who does not understand what life is about and therefore can have no preference in the matter. If no one else has a preference that the child should live, in other words, no one wants the child, infanticide within the first month of life can be morally justified. A child may not be wanted for various reasons such as timing, gender, and or inherit diseases. Remember, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. If we get our worth from our capabilities, our utility, then what about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The unborn, infants, the elderly, the mentally handicapped. In a secular worldview, at best, there isn't an easy answer to this question. At worst, they're not fully human. Which leads to a second scary question. If utility, again, capabilities, determine our worth, then who gets to define what utility is? Just think about that for a second. During the time of Roe versus Wade, which was 1973, two very influential books on bioethics were written by Joseph Fletcher. Joseph Flesher is a, was a professor of bioethics, again, bioethics, ethics, at Harvard University. Joseph Flesher, in those two books, identified personhood with a minimal degree of human consciousness and intelligence, roughly a minimum score of 20 on a Bennett IQ test. 
Obviously, he notes, a fetus cannot meet the test no matter what its stage of growth. Therefore, abortion, according to him, is morally justifiable. Just think about that for a second. I want you to think about the, the arbitrary nature of that argument. Who made this man God to determine that 20 on an IQ test is what gives man his personhood, value, and dignity? 20, why not 19? Why not 25? Just arbitrary. Listen, if man doesn't get his worth from an outside source, from an authority that is above man from God, the man is the one who gets to define value and personhood. He becomes the ultimate authority, and that's scary. If it doesn't scare you, just go, you need to start reading history books. If man, not God, is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. History has proven man is willing to do that and has. It's what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. In fact, one historian said this, in the 20th century, we can look at a long parade of horrible terrors. One of the easiest to identify is the medical ethics of Germany before and during the Third Reich. There, the Germans actually had a medical philosophy called life unworthy of life that formed the foundation of their murderous atrocities. The Germans actually came up with a graduation of life, and the life that was worthy of life was the Aryan life. It was the life of those who were considered to have physically, or considered to be physically and genetically superior, who could contribute to the welfare and the defense and the policies of the Third Reich. In other words, people that they thought had more utility. They were the ones worthy of life, and the life unworthy of life were the gypsies, the homosexuals, the mentally retarded, the physically disabled, and the Jews. Albert Moeller comments on this. We look back at the Third Reich and the German medical ethics that produced it, and we ask, how, how could it be that agents of medicine and doctors turn into agents of death rather than agents of life? It is because they bought into a worldview. They bought into a worldview in which there is a progression from life that is worthy of life to life that is unworthy of life. Well, if you could do that in terms of Jews, in terms of gypsies, in terms of others, then you can certainly do that in terms of the various stages of human development. Because if man, man, not God, if man is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. Nazi Germany did it. It said, life unworthy of life. Modern America is doing it. The unborn baby is life unworthy of life. In a secular worldview, abortion makes sense because the unborn child is a life unworthy of life. It's a worldview that has made it possible for 21% of all pregnancies to end in abortion in the USA. It's a worldview that has seen 57 million lives killed 
since 1973, a whole generation. It's larger than many countries. Listen, we're living through a holocaust. I often wonder what the churches did in, in World War II as, it was, as they were seeing Jews dragged off. We're living it. Do you think worldviews matter? Do you think theology and doctrine that shape those worldviews matter? Do you think bold, sound teaching from Scripture matters? You know the crazy thing about this to me is? I saw a statistic. 48% of self-identified evangelicals that go to church strongly agree with, or, or um, uh, Strongly, or don't strongly agree with this statement. Abortion is a sin. Abortion is, not even abortion is murder. They don't agree with abortion is a sin. That is a deeply theological statement. The evangelical church should be ashamed of that statistic. The least we can do is call abortion what it truly is. Let me finish where I started here. What, matter when, what matters when it comes to, to the argument about, about abortion is not what we think the fetus is. It's what the fetus actually is that matters. If the unborn baby is truly a person, then abortion is murder. It's murder. Which leads me to my last point. And it's just simply this, the heart of the argument for and against abortion. And I just want to be clear, the heart of the argument is just a clash of worldviews. It's a conflict of worldviews, a biblical worldview that says God determines worth. God determines when life starts, and abortion makes no sense because abortion is murder. Versus a secular worldview that says there is no God. That means there is no image of God. It means man defines man's worth. Man defines life worthy of life and life unworthy of life. And I just want to praise God for this. And as God is letting our culture go, this is becoming less and less true. But I am thankful that, the, that most people have a mixture of these two worldviews. Most people haven't adopted a purely secular worldview yet. By God's common grace on our nation, most people you talk to about abortion still believe that all human life has value. More than animal life, more than plant life, but that's changing. It's changing. But most people you talk to will believe that all human life has value. So when you're talking about abortion, you should have two goals. The first one is this, share the gospel. It should be our first goal in every conversation we have. Share the gospel. Evangelize. Evangelism and discipleship should be our, our, our first goal with anyone we talk to about abortion. But the second goal is this. Because of God's common grace and, and, and most people holding on to that human life has value, help them see the inconsistencies of their worldview. Help them see the absurdity of the pro-abortion, pro-choice position. How do you do that? I want to spend the rest of our time just real quick just giving you some pro-life arguments. 
We've actually posted these online. They should be in your, your small group. If you're part of a small group, they'll help you point you to where they're at on our website. You need to start by helping them see that the burden of proof for personhood, and let me give you the, the, the crutch of the argument here is, is the unborn person a person? And most people believe all human life has dignity. They just don't believe the unborn is a person. You need to help them see that. And you should start by saying the burden of the proof is on the pro-choice position. The burden of proof is on the pro-choice position, not the pro-life. Why? If all human life has value, then the pro-abortionist has a moral responsibility to prove that the unborn baby is not a human. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, before supporting abortion. Why beyond a shadow of a doubt? Well, this is what Harold Brown, an apologist, argues. If a hunter, think about this, if a hunter were to see movement behind a bush and shoot at it, without being sure that that movement wasn't caused by a human rather than an animal, such an action would be morally irresponsible at best. You better be sure that that's not a human before you shoot at it. Regarding abortion, any doubts whatsoever, any doubts concerning the, the humanity of the unborn child should be resolved in favor of the developing human life. Any doubts is key word. Help, help people see that. So where does the empirical evidence lead? Is the unborn baby a person? Well, let's just look at scientific facts just real quick. The unborn embryo at conception has its complete separate ge- uh, genetic code from conception. In other words, the unborn embryo has a biological fingerprint right at conception. At conception, there is a unique individual Their hair color is determined. Their eye color is determined. And we can go down a list. Neither the egg or the sperm has all human genetic characteristics alone. Each have 23 chromosomes. But at the moment of conception, they combine and make 46 so that a unique individual begins the process of, of personal human development. And nothing, nothing from that point on in the genetic makeup of that person changes from conception. You have the same biological fingerprint from conception on. The only change that takes place is growth and development of a particular human um, individual. The process of growth and development that this individual undergoes continues into infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Thus, Fertilization or conception is at the point in which a new human life begins. Remember, the burden of proof is on the abortion, pro-abortion side, pro-choice side, that the fetus is not a person. Any doubts, any doubts should lead to the protection of the unborn life. After three weeks, before m- most women know that they are pregnant, there is a discernible heartbeat. At this point, the heart circulates blood within the embryo that is not the mother's blood, but blood the, embry- or the unborn baby has produced. I know we've been hearing that, well, I thought it was six weeks. Well, that's when you can hear it from ultrasound. Six weeks, the first time you can hear it from an ultrasound. But after, or right about six weeks, the embryo is still less than an inch long, but has 
undergone considerable development. Fingers have formed on the hands. At 43 days, the unborn baby has the um, detectable brain waves. After six and a half weeks, the embryo is moving. However, because of the tiny size of the unborn baby and the thickness of the mother's abdominal wall, she does not sense movement until several weeks later. By the end of nine weeks, the fetus has developed a unique set of fingerprints and sexual organs have appeared. By the end of 12 weeks, all the organs of the body are functional. This all happens in the first trimester of pregnancy. And you're telling me, without a shadow of a doubt, human life doesn't start in the womb. You have to be kidding me. No one believes that. It's obvious the unborn baby is a person. And once that's established, all pro-abortion, pro-choice arguments just fail. Just fail. Let me give you six common pro-abortion arguments, and then I get these from Pastor Andy, and, and just the response to them. The first one is this, pro-abortion argument number one. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. In other words, you can't make people morally good through laws. You can't make people be pro-life through laws. Laws don't change people's hearts, in other words. Here's the pro-life response. Yes, but there must be laws to regulate deeds. Does, the, um, does this mean we do away with all laws that have moral foundations? Do we now make murder legal? We are not trying to make people develop a moral character by making and enforcing laws. That's the role of religion and, and discipleship. We are trying to prevent people from doing things that endanger others' lives regar- regardless of how they feel about it. You know what's funny is the same argument was used in the civil rights movements in the 60s. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. We hear the familiar cry that morals can't be legislated. This may be true, but behavior can be regulated. The law may not be able to make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. Anti-abortion laws may not be able to change people's hearts about the rightness or wrongness of abortion, but they can, they can keep people from murdering the unborn. Pro-abortion argument too. Shouldn't we be tolerant? This is the argument you're going to hear more than anything else. Shouldn't we be tolerant? It's, it's the woman's body, and we shouldn't force her to have a child. Response. Don't pro-abortion laws allow some people to force death on the unborn. You don't believe in restricting a woman's choice, but you have no problem restricting the life of the unborn? Isn't the most severe restriction of all to be killed? Isn't the most intolerant act of all murder? If you're really against force, why do you want to force death upon millions of unwilling babies. Pro-abortion argument three. I personally am against abortion, but I don't want to impose my personal views on others. You're going to hear this a lot. Response. Why are you against abortion? If you believe the unborn is a person, why would you not protect innocent human life by passing a law against abortion? 
Suppose the KKK wanted to begin lynching again. Would you be opposing your values on them by making, making and enforcing laws against lynching? Suppose a neo-Nazi party rose, arose and wanted to begin exterminating Jews again. Would you be imposing your values on them by restricting their activities? Pro-abortion argument four. A woman should have reproductive freedom. You know how you should respond to that? She does. She does. Abstinence. It's one. Non-abortive contraceptives. It's two. Motherhood. Or adoption. I'm going to sad side note to all of this. In 2014, there were 17.3 adoptions per 1,000 abortions. Listen, just, just from someone that has been adopted from an unplanned pregnancy, someone that had nurses tell his birth mom that she should get an abortion. And no one asked me. No one asked me. I'm thankful for my birth mom. She gave me up for adoption. You know, and, and as a church, one of the ways that, that we can do something, because I know you're thinking, what can we do? There's, there's a lot of things we can do, but one of, the way, one of the things that we can do, listen, it's be pro-adoption, that's one. But love on women, Christian or not, that are pregnant in crisis pregnancy situations. I just pray that they would feel welcome here. A lot of times the church is the last place they want to go. It should be the first place. You know, I'm just... There's two other arguments. You guys can see them online. I want to end by this. I just looked up. I just thought this was interesting. Um, a few years ago, I just wanted to know because of viability and the argument that, well, you know, when, when is a baby viable? When could a baby survive outside of the womb? And I came across this argument, or article that said this, the earliest premature baby to survive after delivery is now a healthy toddler. And here's the article. Let me just read it. The infant girl, who wasn't named because of family wishes, weighed less than a pound, 410 grams. When she was born in San Antonio, Texas in 2014, the baby's mother was 32-year-old at the time and only 21 weeks and four days pregnant. Before her 20-week routine ultrasound, her pregnancy was moving along normally. It was during that checkup, her OBGYN saw that her cervix was shortening. From there, she was um, in and out of the hospital ultimately placed on bed rest uh, before her daughter's birth. At birth, her daughter's skin was so thin, it was nearly see-through, said Dr. Ahmad, a needle natalist. 
Dr. Ahmad was called into the delivery room. A few minutes later, the, the baby was born. The baby's mother said, uh, said her daughter faintly cried and moved when she came out. But Dr. Ahmad said the infant wasn't breathing and wasn't, um, uh, wasn't breathing when he arrived. Any baby born before 37 weeks is considered premature. A baby born before 25 weeks is considered extremely premature and often comes into the world with complicated um, medical problems, according to the Mayo Clinic. In these situations, doctors don't recommend um, resuscitation. But when the mother looked at Dr. Ahmed through tears and asked him to try, he did. If you'd like us to try, I'm willing, he said. And the doctor placed a breathing tube into her airway. The baby that was once blue turned pink. I'm very happy I did that, the doctor said. She's a wonderful, beautiful little girl. The girl is now three years old and doing well. In preschool and on par with her peers. She's a little smaller in statue next to other kids. But otherwise, she has no mental or health disabilities or issues whatsoever. The mother said, she's a miracle. She's just normal. Listen, there's only two differences between this premature baby and the fetus getting aborted at the same exact age, maybe even the same exact hospital. The two differences are location inside the womb and outside of the womb. And second, did the parents want that child? Listen, the unborn baby is obviously a person. It's one of the reasons abortion has gone down so much in recent years. I don't know if you're surprised by that. If you look at the statistics, it's gone down a lot, and people wonder why. It's because ultrasound technology has got better. We can see the baby. The unborn baby is obviously a person. Therefore, and I say this boldly, abortion is murder. I want to end by a quote from Albert Moeller. Abortion is an issue that must shear the nation's conscience. Abortion is an issue that is so real and relevant right now. Right now, there are babies being terminated in the wombs. Abortion is such a critical issue for us. However, because... Because as Christians, we know that it's a gospel issue. We know that right now, it is not just a baby that is being terminated. It's not just a pregnancy that's being ended. It is a life that is known by God before God made it in the womb. It is a life that is being destroyed. And brothers and sisters, as much as that must motivate us to action, as much as that must simply shear our conscience into a state whereby we cannot be satisfied until this plague on our country is brought to an end, as much as all those things, it is also that which should drive us back to the cross, to the gospel, and back to the realization that the only one who can bring life out of death is the one who is the author of life from the first. I would ask if you would pray this week, pray for our community, the influence that we have around those. Pray for, for, for mothers that have found themselves in unplanned pregnancies. 
I pray for, ask you to pray for our church and, and how we can get more involved in this effort to end abortion, to love on those that, that, that need to be loved on in our community. I would ask that you would pray for our country and leaders. I, I try not to get political from this pulpit, but I, I, there, there is no other issue we should be voting on. It should always be the most pro-life candidate. I care about tax, uh, taxes. I care about guns. They don't come close to abortion. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our president. Pray for Congress. Pray for God's grace on our country. I would ask for that this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just keep finding myself coming to this reality, Lord, as we're faced with sin, as we're faced with evil, as we are faced with, with horrors, Lord. I, I just, I find my comfort in who you are, Lord. I am thankful, God, that you are a good God, Lord. I am thankful that you are a sovereign, all-powerful God. I am thankful that you are a wise God, and I am thankful that I don't know everything. <laughs> and all I need to do is trust in you, Lord. But I do, I pray for our church, Lord. I pray that you just convict our hearts, Lord, to, to stand for the unborn, Lord, to speak up in conversations, Lord, speaking truth and love, Lord. Speaking in ways that people will hear us, not just arguing to, to win an argument, Lord. I pray for that, God. I pray that we stand for those women, Lord, that, that find themselves with a choice of abortion, Lord. That we reach out to them somehow. That you would bring them to us and that we would just love them. By sharing the gospel with them, Lord. By sharing your grace to them. Speaking of grace, Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that has been involved in an abortion, who's had an abortion, Lord, I just pray that you just shower them with your grace, that they know, they know that they are forgiven, Lord, if they put their faith in you, and if they haven't put their faith in you, Lord, if there's anyone that hasn't trust you in here this morning, I pray that they trust in your son, that he came to die for their sins, that grace and forgiveness is offered to them right now. They just need to cry out in their heart to you. God, I pray for this evil that is a part of our country, Lord. I pray that you just get rid of it. Be with us, Lord, as we are a church in the midst of a Holocaust, Lord. Show us, Lord, the directions that you would have us go. In your son's name, amen.